of Genesis in an effort to understand what these verses tell us about God. To lift our eyes beyond the text, beyond the pages, and to see God's nature, God's character, what God has done and continues to do. Genesis 1 was not written as a textbook. It was not trying to prove or disprove any scientific theories, but it is trying to communicate to us specific and special revelation about God and implant that wisdom within us. We have been seeking to bring to light the greater meaning in the text because it is theocentric in nature. It's God-centered, not us-centered. These first lines of the Bible, even the first few words, in the beginning, God, it immediately points us and our attention to the sovereign God who is over all of creation. The only reason that there is anything The breath in our lungs included. The only reason that there is anything instead of nothing is first because God is. And because God is, God then created. It was only by God's mere delight to do so, to bring creation and us into existence and order all things according to his will for his purposes. And so today we study the last few verses of this creation account, and it actually begins in Genesis chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 1 and halfway through verse 4. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. I'm not going to do a full recap of what I've already discussed over the past few weeks. But I do want to briefly recall just two things that we did talk about. And these patterns that we saw in the first six days of creation. Because they will have some relevance for us this morning. So we talked about the beautiful symmetry in Genesis 1 where we see this parallel structure between days 1 through 3 and then days 4 through 6. And today we're focusing on day 7. And the first point of discussion in this that I want to make is where does this narrative of creation actually end? Where does it end? If you think about the way in which we have our Bible um, organized or indexed by chapters and verses, that's an extremely helpful tool for us. Because I could say, open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2, verse 1, and everyone could, in their own Bibles could go there pretty quickly and find it, and we would all be looking at the same portion of Scripture. It's a very helpful tool. But we also have to remember that these chapters and verses those designations are not original to the bible those are some things that were added later and so there's a little bit of human subjectivity into where those chapter divisions and verse divisions are are, were placed and it would be nice this is one of my my pet peeves of the bible if i could change one thing this this would be the thing because you open to the the first story in the bible And you would think that Genesis 1 would be the whole story, and it's kind of not. It actually goes into Genesis 2, 
a few verses. And many Bibles, if, if you have it open, it, it probably puts the little added uh, subtitles after verse 3. A lot of Bibles do that. But I go a little further than that and go halfway through verse 4. And I'm going to talk more about that next week. But one point that I wanted to make that I think is more relevant for this week is by doing that, it, it creates what I'll call this bookend effect. It brings everything together and it patterns everything in this really nice way. Because if you remember, Genesis 1-1 begins, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And if you go to Genesis 2, chapter 4, and just look at that first part of it, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. Now, that, that word generations, um, it's kind of a, maybe an awkward word for us to put right there, but another way to look at that is saying the origins of. So these are the origins of the heavens and the earth. This clause can point us back to what had previously come. These are the origins of the heavens and the earth when they were created. We also see similarities between these two verses in the phrase, the heavens and the earth. You might think, well, that just kind of sounds natural and fluid and because that's how we've always heard it. But the second part of verse 4, and I'll talk about this next time, it switches it. It says the earth and the heavens. It doesn't say the heavens and the earth, so there's a little bit of difference there. But then lastly, we also see this word created in both verses. In verse 1, we see it again in chapter 2, verse 4, at least the first part of verse 4. And that word created, I probably should have mentioned this in the first sermon series uh, on this section, but it's a word that designates, that it's, it's a special Hebrew word in a way. It appears about 50 times in the Old Testament. And it appears, it's the word bara, that's what it is in Hebrew. And it's a unique verb because it, it, it has associations with, it indicates a divine activity. It's not just something that, that we make. We don't borrow things like that. It's associated with God in the divine space and what God can do. And so we see bara, that created verb in both, both Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 2 verse 4. And so taking that all together, it creates this bookend effect. It binds what began as the, the prologue with now this epilogue and everything contained in between, it gives it just this other layer of structure and beauty to the passage. So what God set out to do in Genesis 1-1 in the prologue, God brings to completion in the fullness of completion in this epilogue, if you want to call it that. The other structuring pattern that we've looked at in Genesis 1 that we've spent some time on is how each day was structured. And so I, I kind of listed four points that each day, is, and God said, let there be so-and-so or whatever. And so there's a spoken command, and that command comes to existence, comes to fruition. And then God confirms that that creation was good. There's a goodness to what God created. And then God gives it an order and a purpose and each day ends with this formula, and there was evening, and there was morning, the whatever day. But when we get to day seven, why I mention that again, when we get to day seven, all those patterns break. All those patterns that we, we saw in days one through six now break. And so what does that do? Well, it tells us something. It tells us something important 
has just happened. So if you remember back to what I focused on last week, I talked about whether, whether we consciously realize it or not, we often fall into the trap of thinking that we humans are the most important things in the universe. Sometimes we fall into the trap of thinking I am the most important thing in the universe and everything kind of revolves around my little solar system here, you know, my family and my work and my job and my possessions and all this stuff. We become the center of our own universes thinking, you know, that we are what matters most. And I think if we're honest, when we look at creation and the, the story of creation, we go to day one and we're like, oh, wow, that's great. Day two, that's great. Three, four, five. And then we get to day six and humans are created and all everything is very good at that point. We're like, yes, we're here. We're special. We're created in the image of likeness of God. We're, we're given rule and authority over the earth. Everything else after this is just fluff. We are the climax of the story but we're not. When we do that, when we make us the climax of this story, we, we think of all of creation then as being anthropocentric. It's being human-centered, us-centered. And I kind of can't help but wonder, back to my pet peeve on, our, on the Bible divisions, why I talked about this. Why does chapter 1 end with the creation of humans? I just wonder if, if they missed something there when they did that. Because humans may be the the pinnacle of all created things, but it's not the climax of the creation story. Day seven is. And day seven, it's all about God. Let's walk through day seven now. Genesis 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them I think this, this is a verse that it's, it's phrased very purposefully this way. With the first part, the heavens and the earth, referencing days one through three. You know, when God created light and the waters and separated the waters and the sky and the dry land. God created the heavens and the earth and then filled them with all the host of them. So the, the, the fish and the birds and the land animals and the humans which filled those things, all the hosts were created. It gives, it kind of talks back to that parallel aspect of the creation story. And we go to verse 2 and we see, then on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. Now notice here, we do get the name the seventh day, just like we did other days of this creation story, but it doesn't happen at the, the end. It doesn't conclude the day. It doesn't say, and there was evening and there was morning the seventh day. It just talks about the seventh day. So there's a point that I'll come back to in just a little bit, but I'll ask the question here. When does day seven end? So we'll come back to that. So all of creation is created and ordered and ready to go, and we continue in verse 2. And then it says, and God rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. Now, if we take that on the surface level, this brings us to a logical question. Why did God rest? Was God tired? I mean, I get tired. I've been trying to uh, train up for a, for a cycling event this coming month going around Lake Tahoe. So this last week, I've tried to increase my miles. And tell you what, I get tired I get home and I'm just wiped out. 
I'm ready to go to bed. It's like 5 p.m. and I'm just done. I'm spent. Did God get tired? I mean, and you think, okay, well, created the whole universe. That's, you know, a valid reason to be tired. But are we saying that God needed a nap here? The question at hand is this question of what does it mean that God rested? Well, there is a, another layer. There is a deeper meaning here. And it centers around what it means for God to rest. So first, the, the Hebrew understanding of the word for rested means not sleeping, not taking a nap, but stopping, of ceasing from that which was happening. So as we continue in verse 2, it goes on to tell us God rested, that is God ceased from all his creating work, brought that to an end. It wasn't that God took a nap. It wasn't even that God got tired. It doesn't describe God's physical state, but the completion of God's creating work. But there's still more to this idea of resting. In the ancient world, in the ancient understanding, gods were understood to rest in temples. A temple was God's resting place or dwelling place. And I have a quote from a scholar, John Walton. And he writes, The role of the temple in the ancient world is not primarily a place for people to gather and worship like modern churches. It is a place for deity, sacred space. It is his home, but more importantly, his headquarters, the control room. When the deity rests in the temple, it means that he is taking command, that he is mounting to his throne to assume his rightful place and his proper role. What day seven in Genesis is describing is how all of creation is God's dwelling place. In a sense, all of creation is this grand cosmic temple that has been fashioned by God. We see this if we look over in Isaiah 66. God speaks through the prophet Isaiah saying, Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. That's temple language. The heavens are my throne, the earth my footstool. But the Israelites knew that God was not and God could not be contained. When we think about the temple in the Old Testament, the one that, that Solomon originally built. When Solomon built that, he knew that even in building it, that it could not contain God. He even tells us during, during kind of the, the biggest moment for that temple, when he dedicates it, when he offers this prayer of blessing over it, Solomon acknowledges this. This is in 1 Kings chapter 8. But will God indeed dwell on earth? Question mark. Behold, Heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Solomon knew that that temple wasn't enough to con contain God. In the New Testament, the martyr Stephen makes a similar statement in Acts 7. He references Solomon saying, But it was Solomon who built a house for him, yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. And the Apostle Paul, in his speech to the people at Athens, says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, 
nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. They all knew that the creator of the universe could not be contained in walls, in the walls of a little temple. God could not be placed in a box. The question is, why do we sometimes live our lives as if we can put God in a box? When we live our lives as, as ourselves being the center of the universe, a ruler of the universe, well, first, that's pretty naive and arrogant thinking. But what we try to do, in a sense, whether we consciously do it or not, most likely we don't consciously do this, is we put God into a box of our own making. We are only concerned with God then when we allow for it or when it's convenient for us. Or like, okay, God, this is this, this time. I'm going to take you out of the box. I'm going to spend some time with you. Okay, now go back in the box. Go back into your little temple that I've made for you. In that way, we, we kind of use God or we think of God maybe as a little a genie in a lamp. As long you know, when I rub the lamp, God pops out. I'm going to say a few prayers or, you know, ask for a few wishes. And then he's going to go back into the lamp And then I'm going to be the ruler of my universe. That's not what Genesis points us to. Genesis points us to a right understanding of God. That God is creator and ruler over all creation. That nothing can contain our God. God is in control and God is the one who is over all things. Not us. It's this great God. This God who rules over all creation. Who also invites us to be a part of it with him. This great God invites us and calls us to bear the responsibility of caring for creation, to be God's mediators in the world, representing his image and his likeness. And as such, we are to be this holy priesthood. You are called to be a priest. That doesn't mean you have to go around wearing a black shirt with a little you know, white square on, on your neck. You don't have to go into ordained ministry or anything like that, but you are called to be a priest. And we're going to talk more about that uh, also next week. But God employs his priest. He employs humanity to the work and to the care of his cosmic temple. That's what a priest does, serves in the temple. We are to serve in this temple. God has entrusted us with that responsibility. I want to go back to a question I, I posed earlier. When does day seven end? All the other days kind of have a kind of a marked beginning and ending. But let's look at the words again and consider when does day seven end? I'll start in verse two. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. So when does it end? Well, in the text, it doesn't really end. There's no marker for the end of that day. And I don't think that that's by accident. I don't think that's by accident. I think it invites us to consider something. I think that's an intentional detail that now that this cosmic temple has been created, God doesn't just stop doing things. He doesn't just take this nap God assumes his throne and rules over the universe from that point on. In that sense, day seven continues on. God continues to rule. 
God continues to be sovereign over all the universe. And so what day seven symbolizes is like this inauguration day. Just for illustrative purposes. Let's say you want to open up a business. All right? So for that business, you got you got to get some land. you got to build your structure. You have to fill that structure with all the, the materials and the supplies you need, and, you know, the products you need in it. Well, then you're still not done. you got to fill it with employees, you know, so when people come in, they can, you know, shop and interact with employees, and you need work being done in that business. But then say everything's ready, and you've got all the employees, and then you say, great, it's ready to go. Done. That's not what you do with a business. What do you do with a business? The, the next day, once it's done, you do a grand opening. You actually start running the business. That's when it starts is when everything is working and operating as it was planned to do. God creates the heavens and the earth and fills it and he assigns roles and functions. And once everything is in place, God gives his blessing over it and he inaugurates his reign over creation And he continues to govern and sustain all to this very day and to eternity. All of this is part of God's cosmic temple. But there's another aspect of day seven that I want to draw our attention to. And this is in the idea presented in the text of blessing and holiness. I'll read verses three and four again. And as I read, I want you to try to determine what exactly is blessed and made holy. What is the subject of that? So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Well, there's our answer right there. So what did God bless and make holy? The seventh day. Well, that's unique because God did not give that distinction to any material thing or a physical place or even a living being. He blessed and made holy a time. In our day-to-day life, we are so consumed, I mean, we can admit it, with the material. Whether it's food, and I'm not saying food's a bad thing, but, you know, think hunter-gatherer civilizations. You know, they're always constantly thinking about food and how they're going to get food and grow food and all that. We're concerned with food. We're concerned with money, with resources, with clothes, with homes, with land, with stuff. That's what we spend kind of our whole lives doing is focused on these material things. And we perceive that the more that we have of these things, the greater we are, the greater our significance. But God invites us to consider something different. Something that is immaterial. Something that is spiritual. God invites us into a sacred time in which we can enter into God's rest. That word rested In verse 3, you've probably heard um, the Hebrew word Shabbat, which the word Sabbath comes from. The Sabbath in the Jewish tradition occurs from sunset on Friday evening until sunset on Saturday evening. And there's a Jewish scholar and author, his name is Abraham Heschel, and he he wrote a whole book on the Sabbath, and it's really an insightful little book. Um, But he writes this, for six days a week we wrestle with the world ringing profit from the earth. On the Sabbath, we especially care for the seed of eternity planted in the soul. The world has our hands, but our soul belongs to someone else. Friends, our soul belongs to God. 
And what God blessed and made holy was this idea of this event in time, this moment in time where we draw ourselves into God's presence. Another reason I think that it's significant that, that day seven, as presented, doesn't have a defining end is because that means that that can be any time. Entering God's presence isn't, you don't have to schedule into God's calendar when you do that. God doesn't have office hours. You know, God's not only open on Sundays or Saturdays or Monday through Friday, 8 to 5, or even just in your 30-minute quiet time in the morning or the evening. God's open for business at all times. Day seven continues, even now God is still reigning over creation and God invites you at any time, all the time, to enter into his presence and to worship him, to find rest in his presence. We have this ever-present opportunity to worship the Lord and to draw near to him. And the Sabbath for us is a reminder. It's this opportunity in which we get a glimpse and a taste of what it means to enter that rest. Because that is what our heart and our souls long for. Famous St. Augustine, quote, Yet would man praise you, he but a particle of your creation. You awaken us to delight in yourself, or in your praise, for you have created us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. The idea of Sabbath, this rest, is really this invitation to rest and to delight in God's care. It is to step back from the material and to acknowledge, you know, we really don't have that much control. We like to think we have a lot of control, and there's things we make decisions on, but we don't have that much control. We need to recognize that God is in control. It is to come to a clear awareness that God is God and that we are not. And so it's difficult for us, I I admit that. We have so much that demands our time and our energy. It's hard to even keep up with our days and weeks sometimes. We have so many things demanded of us and so many distractions thrown at us that, you know, when we finally do get, like the, the kids are, they actually provided a nice little illustration When we finally do get some rest after school or after work, what do we want to do? We just kind of want to distract ourselves for a little bit. We want to turn on the video game or turn on the TV or just, you know, pig out and get some food for a little bit. There's so much thrown at us and and so many distractions in front of us. It's no accident that in the Ten Commandments, when it talks about the Sabbath, it says, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Why does it say remember? Because we tend to forget, don't we? Remember the Sabbath. Remember that time in which we can enter into God's presence and find rest. Don't be so consumed with your own universe. We, have, we convince ourselves every day that we have so many more important things to do than to stop and to find rest in God's presence. But day seven of creation brings us back to the source of all things. It says, you know, all this, this is about God. This is about God's reign and God's control over your life. It reminds us that all of this is part of God's cosmic temple. And as God rules over all things, he invites us to share in that opportunity to, to spend time with him and to be his image and likeness in the world, which is an act of worship. 
This same God invites us to enter those sacred moments in time that points us to eternity. I want to end with this quote. It's actually just from the ESV Study Bible. It says, The Sabbath points us, or I'm sorry, the Sabbath points forward to the rest that Christ achieved in his resurrection and ascension, which will be fully manifested in the consummation. When all things come together, when this new heavens and the new earth has come to be, there we will find that ultimate rest. So the question for us is, how do you Sabbath? How do you enter that sacred space and time with God? How do you enter into God's presence? Both now, in part, but also with an eye to eternity. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your abundance, for your goodness.